Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. Today on KUNC's Colorado Edition. Some Coloradans whose loved ones are struggling with severe mental illness are having a difficult time finding long-term treatment options. We hear about new efforts to get people the care they need in just a bit. Today is Wednesday, May 4th. I'm Erin O'Toole, and this is Colorado Edition from KUNC. We're going to begin today with a conversation about increasing access to higher education, in particular for low-income students and students of color. If you're a Colorado high schooler who lives in a middle-to-high-income household, you're most likely going on to college. Data shows 67% of those students enroll in a bachelor's degree program, but those numbers are much lower for other students. Now, last year, state lawmakers took several steps to make college more accessible and more equitable. Colorado made national headlines by becoming the first state to ban the use of so-called legacy admissions by public colleges and universities. Governor Jared Polis also signed a bill to keep public colleges from requiring SAT or ACT scores. While students can still submit those test scores, it allows admissions officers to focus on high school performance indicators like grade point average or class rank. Nearly a year after those bills were signed into law, it's not clear yet what the impact will be. But Dr. Pius Kamau believes much more needs to be done to encourage and support children from underrepresented communities, and especially in the so-called STEM fields of science, technology, engineering, and math. He was born and raised in Kenya, was a surgeon in Colorado for three decades, and has been a newspaper columnist, writer, and commentator, including for NPR and KUNC. Dr. Kamal, welcome. Hey, thank you so much, Erin. wondering what really got you thinking about this issue of equity and, and how to fix it. The, the issue of education of the, min- of the minority student uh, has been with me for you know, a long time. I I do have minority children myself, and it really came to a point about a year ago during the COVID pandemic, at which time, time as we know, more minorities have died from COVID than, say, white patients. And therefore, my my thinking is, uh, why don't we have more, more minority doctors? So it seems the question becomes, how do we get more minority and low-income students into these fields? You are a part of a couple of advocacy groups who are proposing solutions that come not just from lawmakers, but that directly involve colleges and universities. Yeah, and and that's uh, that's the big question, really. Every time I talk to uh, colleges or to universities, they all seem to think that they are doing quite a lot already. But the truth of the matter is I, as an observer, essentially believe that we could do more, especially universities, both the medical school that I'm talking about. I mean, um, they are trying now, they're trying somewhat harder to, uh, to get more minority uh, students uh, to go into medical school. But 
it seems to me that we have to be doing a bit more. We should have begun maybe at the high school level, maybe at the, uh, at the middle school level, to sort of begin maybe encouraging those young kids to begin thinking about medicine or becoming doctors when they grow up, and also begin thinking in terms of maybe becoming engineers maybe, but we have to begin planting the seed in their brains, their minds, when they're that young, I think. And that brings the other issue of language, of course, uh, which I'm sure we can talk about. Yeah, in fact, say more about that. You talk about uh, there is a certain language in STEM fields, much like uh, learning a language other than English. It's the language of science. And Yes, yes. And uh, one of the things I have learned is that the language of mathematics, for example, is slightly different from, uh, let's say, Shakespeare. So if we can begin telling and introducing, let's say, the concepts of, uh, of algebra at uh, an elementary school level, by the time they get to be uh, in middle school, then they are at that point quite cognizant of those concepts and ideas that, that go into, uh, into STEM and into, sci- into science. This brings me to another way to help, and that is in the realm of standardized test-taking. You wrote a column in the Denver Gazette this month, and one of the things it touched on was how kids should be taught to succeed on tests like the SAT and the ACT. Yes, yes. The the American system, as as I've, I've lived in this country, have appreciated that a lot of the exams that we do we are trained, we trained ourselves into, into doing those, those tests. It, it seems to me that if a well-to-do uh, white student can go to a prep, a prep school, for example, why can't we do something similar, maybe not quite as expensive, but something similar for minority students? So in, in a sense, I'm, I'm, I'm putting the honors on universities. You folks, you know exactly what it is that you want in terms of the ACTs and, uh, and the ACTs. You know, you can help kids in uh, both in high school and middle school to sort of begin, quote unquote, acing those, those tests that you're going, you're going to be giving them. So they, 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 they're, used, they're used to them. Repetition, therefore, becomes very, very important. And universities can do that. And we know some universities kind of backed away from using them during the pandemic. I think part of that was the tests are given in groups in a very enclosed classroom. We know some universities are starting to require them again. Colorado is not. But it, so is this still important? I think it's important to, to learn the content. It's not necessarily the, uh, the piece of paper, you know, that you have uh, or, or the gradation, the grade that you have at the end of, uh, of the test. But I think it's the content of, of what what is ACT, for example. What do I need to learn and and, and know, you know, for for the ACT exam, or the ACT. So in other words, I mean, I'm more really more interested in the content, you know, so that so that the student, by the time they are in twelfth grade, have all the knowledge that they are going to require to successfully go through the under their undergraduate years. So whether you do a test or don't do the test, but let's let's see if we can learn the content of the uh, of, of, the te- of those tests. 
Well, one other aspect of this that you touch on in your recent column is that kids benefit from universities reaching out to them, um, kind of going to them and their schools and their neighborhoods at a younger age. Talk about that and the benefit of that. So first of all, think of a, a child in, a, in the inner city, for example. Does he ever think of a, a university at all? Does he ever think of himself being in a university? In fact, I think, sadly, most kids in the, in, in the neighborhood, in, in, the, in the poor neighborhoods, sort of see the prison more as a, as a possible place to go than the university. It seems to me that the university really needs to extend itself to change from an ivory tower, you know, this, this huge mansion on the hill in, and come down to where we are on the street. It's imperative, it's imperative that universities, the teachers come to the place where the poor, the poor live and you know, to, to introduce them to the fact that they can become doctors, they can become engineers, they can become mathematicians because they have God-given brains like everybody else. And we need, we need to explore those minds and those brains. We need to help them. We need to extend ourselves and reach out to them, I believe. Well, there's so much more we can talk about. It would be great to have you back on in the future. Dr. Pius Kamau is president of the Africa America Higher Education Partnerships based in Aurora. Thank you so much for talking with me about this today. Thank you, Erin. During an ongoing mental health crisis, many Coloradans with serious mental illnesses end up cycling in and out of the emergency department or jail. Without easily accessible long-term treatment, this cycle leaves some with nowhere to go. KUNC's Lee Patterson reports that a $65 million piece of legislation aims to create more places where people can get help. In high school in Fort Collins, Sarah Morales' son was a good student and an outstanding soccer player. Then, out of nowhere, he had his first psychotic break at age 16. She's been tracking his number of hospitalizations ever since. I keep a spreadsheet. It's like going on over 40 times. They've all been involuntary um, because part of his illness is that he doesn't realize that he's sick. An involuntary mental health hold generally means 72 hours in the hospital. The goal is stabilization. Morales points out that this is nowhere near long enough to actually treat someone like her son, who has schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. He struggles with paranoia and tactile hallucinations, feeling sensations on his skin or inside his body. Which is horrible. So he's in a lot of pain. And he also has a dual diagnosis, which means he has started using substance. And I think that is to try to help with the pain and self-medicate. He's been in and out of hospitals and jails. All of these episodes are complicated and blend together in Morales's mind, but she gives one recent example. He'd been missing for a couple of days and I found him in Loveland. I was driving around for a couple of days. It was winter and I found him at the soup kitchen. He was disheveled, not wearing a coat. I could see the way that he was moving, that he was just really in a, in a bad place. Hadn't probably changed his clothes in days. While his mom was trying to call for help, someone spotted him running with his pants down. Soon after, the police arrived and took him to jail. 
At that time, he was on the wait list to get into Fort Logan, one of the two state-run psychiatric hospitals. Soon after, he was put on the list for the other in Pueblo, which is for people involved in the criminal justice system. Morales says he had to wait for many months to get in. Yeah, and so there just aren't enough beds. And so it's constantly like he's being hospitalized for a day or two. It just requires a lot more intensive treatment. All sorts of people involved in this issue describe a broken behavioral health system. One of the key pieces is a shortage of treatment beds where people can go for longer-term support, like therapy, medication, and case management. According to the Treatment Advocacy Center, a national nonprofit, Colorado falls far below the recommended number of beds for its population. The package we're highlighting today isn't just about policy, it's about our people across the state of Colorado. At a recent press conference, Governor Jared Polis gave an update on several behavioral health bills. Last year, after the governor and state lawmakers decided to put $450 million of COVID stimulus funding into fixing the system, a task force was created to figure out how to spend that money. One of its recommendations was to increase the number of treatment beds. That recommendation is now a bill. Okay, House Bill 1303, who would like to begin? At a recent committee hearing, dozens of people testified in favor of HB 1303, which would add 16 beds at one of the state hospitals and another 125 at small community treatment facilities. Both Sarah Morales and her other son, Ethan, spoke. My twin brother, my best friend at the age of 16, was ripped away from me by schizophrenia, and he has never had the help that he has needed. It's plain to the eye that our health system is severely lacking right now. Various statistics support the feeling in the room that the scale of this problem is significant. In 2019, 50,000 involuntary mental health holds were issued in Colorado. At the jail in Larimer County, where Sarah Morales lives, around 40 percent of people in custody have a serious mental illness. Out of the millions of Americans who live with serious mental illness, around two-thirds got treatment or took medication in 2020, according to data from the federal government. The BEDS legislation has bipartisan support, including from Republican Representative Shane Sandridge from El Paso County. I'm the type of person that thinks really very few things should be funded by the government, but this is something that should be funded by the government. During this committee hearing, one lawmaker did vote against the bill. In an email, Representative Rod Pelton wrote that it was because of cost, not cause. The details of those ongoing costs to the state are still being worked out. So my name is Perry May, and I'm the Deputy Executive Director of Health Facilities. From his position in the Department of Human Services, May helps oversee both psychiatric hospitals. He says that cost has always been a barrier to building bed capacity and describes the legislation this way. It's a good start. There certainly is more that needs to be done. The 125 community beds would offer a lower level of care. So for someone in crisis, this could be an alternative to hospitalization. For someone being discharged from the state hospital, this could be a place to go before going home. These beds could also free up space in the state hospitals as some of those patients move into the community beds. This really is a level of care that hasn't existed in Colorado per se, a missing level of care. Despite the bed shortage, Sarah Morales and her son have had some positive experiences with treatment when they've been able to get it. She says he's been stable over the years, following a few months-long stays in the state hospitals. So when he's stable, like when he was stabilized last time um, with Fort Logan, I mean, he loves music. 
So he loves music and he loves soccer still. He does love smoking cigarettes, which is not my favorite thing. These days, Morales says her son is doing okay, thanks to a variety of services in Larimer County, a court diversion program and behavioral health support through a local provider. Right now, her son is living in Fort Collins at a community facility for people struggling with both substance abuse and mental health. They're managing his meds and helping him find long-term housing. I mean, I think with enough support, he can be stable enough. Morales has made a real effort to talk about her experience in recent years, advocating at the Capitol, joining support groups. I'm trying to remain hopeful and optimistic, I guess, in terms of the future. I'm always thinking, like, maybe there's going to be a treatment. Maybe they're going to come up with the right medication. That's what sort of keeps me going. You know, I have to. As a mom, I can't just give up on my child. If the legislation gets signed into law, more space for patients could be ready early next year. Lee Patterson, KUNC. And one more vital piece of information for Colorado drivers today. The state is auctioning a bunch of custom license plates for Star Wars fans. Configurations include Mando, Anakin, Kylo Ren, Yoda IM, and Jedi. So lots of options here for the light or dark side to show off your fandom. Proceeds raised go into a fund to benefit Coloradans living with disabilities. The auction for these plates goes through Sunday. You'll find a link in the show notes and at KUNC.org. And may the fourth be with you. That's all for today on Colorado Edition. Our executive producer is Sean Corcoran. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat. And I'm Erin O'Toole. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you won't miss an episode. We'll be back Friday with more news from Northern Colorado. 